Yeah, here with Donna Travis, or Don Travis. What do you prefer, Don or Donna? Um, um, well, people call me Don okay. I've since I was about 12. So. I'll call you Don then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> since you were 12, and you were just saying like around the 80s around here, so you've kind of... Have you always been around the East End of London? Yeah, I grew up in uh, East London and North East London. So Tottenham, Hackney, um, all of East London, really, because my dad was from East London. My grandparents lived here. We lived in Hackney and Tottenham. So, yeah, just, yeah, just I always, I, I have lived in other parts of London. So I've lived in South London, West London. I have lived all over, but I think... There's something special about East London to me. I suppose it's my spiritual home in some ways. Yeah, it feels like home, doesn't it? It feels like home, yeah. Always had... Uh, I think what I liked about it growing up was it had more of an outdoor street culture than the rest of London. Mm. So there was more people on the streets, more people doing things on the streets, um, more diversity than other areas, I felt. Mm. So, yeah, so... Why do you think that is, more stuff on the streets? Do you think it's because more people live in blocks? I think I'd researched it once and it was something really bizarre. Like, you know, East London was the docks, right? Mm -hmm. So East London was a place where everyone worked on the streets. And I don't know whether maybe sort of spiritually or ideologically it comes from that, that it was a place where people had to go out and, and mingle. Yeah. But then also maybe to do with like more social housing, so people come out more. It's interesting that we were just talking about New York because in New York everyone lives in apartments. Mm -hmm. So their streets are really busy because you have to come out. Yeah. If you live in a small space, that's mm -hmm. what I think anyway. Um, and I think, you know, parts of North West London, North East London that I kind of also grew up in, I just think that people stayed more in their houses or, you know, there's less of that coming out on the street because you want to kind of meet other people. Mm. Um, and I think that makes the city really, you know, this kind of coming out and never really thought about it like that. Yeah. I suppose the markets as well. People the are kind of working out in like a covered but outside area. Yeah. And then the pub culture as well, where yeah. people have that um, public house, that living room mm -hmm. that's kind of communal and shared, isn't it? Yeah. So exactly. I suppose there is something really um, communal in feel about East London. I suppose even moving into the kind of uh, creative era, people originally in Shoreditch and then Hackney Wick, um, kind of co-living in warehouse spaces and stuff like that as well. Mm -hmm. There is a kind of, um, there is a community, isn't there? I think so. And I think the, even when I was younger, there was always a really strong artist base in East London, again, who kind of came out on the streets, made things visible. And I think, you know, the city can be quite a lonely place unless you have this. You know, if we're all inside and we're only seeing each other, like when we go to the shops or whatever, then it, it can feel... Yeah, it can feel lonely, but I think it, you know, if we if we create things that are on the street um and about us coming together, I suppose, then you know, it, it ceases to be this lonely place. It, it's more kind of a collective and stronger, you know, and I think that's coming through at the moment with all the stuff that's going on politically in the country, you know, that the unions like Mick Lynch and these people are starting to rise up and say, well, actually, you know, these benefits that we've had, like our NHS, and it, they didn't come, they were given to us as a present by the rich. You know, we actually had to come out on the street and demand these. So I think there is, uh, which is something I'd never thought I'd see in my lifetime. I never thought that people would escape consumerism and actually come out for their kind of rights and the rights of other people, like nurses. 
So I, I think there's a lot of exciting things going on at the moment that are about street protest, you know, being on the street, being visible. Um, the mayor's office did something recently about, you know, those cultures and communities that are unseen. I, I don't know where the bill is at the moment, but I know the Tories were trying to get the anti-protest bill through. But now the Lords have, I think the Lords have rejected it. The one time that we can actually thank that we've got a, an unelected house of, of lords in there that are actually like doing something now to like protect democracy which is like kind of strange isn't it yeah. but yeah everything you were talking about then really um kind of beautifully segues into what what you do and kind of getting stuff out on the streets getting people engaging with um the sort of photography projects the photography projects are um the result of real people doing real things as well um but also that kind of um that history of radicalism and protest that's always been around in the east end of london as well it's got a it's got a heritage of that but it feels like it's going um further afield now it feels like there's been a a tipping point doesn't it and it feels like things are like yeah i didn't think it would happen i think after um the division of brexit and after the kind of um how just how divided the country was i didn't think that people would come together as a kind of working class again because the working class had been so divided over issues that really um didn't have much to do with them <laughs> and i think now coming together as a as a, a whole class of people i think yeah that's a a beautiful surprise really isn't it yeah, I think so. As, you know, as I said, I didn't think I'd ever see it. I think that, you know, working classes were, were sort of sold consumerism, if you like, as a kind of ide ideology. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that they've recognised that that, A, isn't that satisfying, and B, it only benefits a certain few. Um, and also with the environmental issues that we're having, that we can't keep buying stuff because it just ends up in our oceans. Um, so, yeah, and I agree with you. I think there has been a great big turnaround. And I, I do think we have to thank people like Mick Lynch and the unions um, and, and the environmental um, campaigners that have been sort of hanging off bridges and things that are saying, actually, we're not happy in this system. And what we want is a fairer system. Yeah. You know, not one that is rigged, an unfair tax system and one a political system that is basically rigged, you know. And I do think the younger generations are now much more able to speak out in a way that my generation almost felt that we couldn't. It was like unsaid, you couldn't say that was wrong or you, you know, and I think now that people, there's just a lot more platforms for these kind of um, dissenting voices. Mm. I think as well that maybe it's been, there has been a realisation that um, a lot of the people in power don't have a clue what they're doing mm -hmm. and they are, a lot of them are there for entirely the wrong motives um, when they're supposed to be there to represent the people and they're just not whatsoever. Um, and I think the kind of mask has slipped a little bit now, whereas I think in, um, in previous eras, maybe there was this idea of, well, there are people in authority, you have to respect them. You have to respect people that are in charge or that have a badge. And I think now we're saying, well, actually, they haven't done anything to earn our respect. Um, and now it's up to us to, to make that change in the same way that you were saying before that um, none of the rights were given to us. They were all um, they were all worked hard for. And I think people are starting to realise now that if we don't 
do something soon, especially with the um, the way that the um, climate crisis is going, the way that the um, consumerism is kind of at a dead end. I think people are really start. Most people, I maybe I don't know. This is the problem, Don. We live in a bubble, don't we? And as soon as we get out of Hackney or yes, East London, you think I actually, know. I know, you know, maybe things aren't changing. But, that. I know. Well, un- unfortunately, we still have a very right wing media controlled by Murdoch, which mm. is like the Daily Mail, the Sun. You know, majoritatively, I'd say what eighty percent of our newspapers are still like not mentioning climate change, not mentioning political change. So. I mean, I think that's why groups like ours, you know, like Alternative London and what I do, and there's loads, actually, there's loads of sort of groups that are saying, well, you know, things can be different. And what about seeing these people instead of those people every day? It's like you said, when we get out of the bubble, it's like actually people are still reading the Daily Mail and and reading about royals that really shouldn't be where they are and Mm. aren't that important in the bigger scheme of things. But, you know, as small, you know, small changes slowly, small revolutions, that's what they say, isn't it? Yeah, Mm. that things change slowly and consistently rather than kind of one big, you know, instant change. Yeah, generally speaking, I think that's the case, isn't it? You've just got to keep chipping away and working hard and taking any opportunity that you can to mm-hmm. to make a bit of change. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about the um, the Gillet Square project. Right, so Gillet Square Stories is um, something my colleague Wayne Critchlow and I um, have been, an area that we've been documenting, um, Gillet Square and Ridley Road in Dalston. Mm-hmm. Um, we both grew up in the area um, and we knew the community fairly well. So we decided to document it because we felt the um, area was changing. Um, there was a lot of corporate development. Dawson was very trendy. So Dawson sort of becoming like Shoreditch, really. And there's plus points to that. Um, there's still a young feel to the area, still lots of clubs there. But I suppose the original communities there were Caribbean and they had an incredibly rich history. Um, the All Nations Club, Centre Prize were places where music was uh, incredible and it was also spaces where that community felt safe. And Gillett Square was part of that, really, and Ridley Road. You know, it was somewhere where um, the Caribbean communities would go in the 60s, 70s, 80s and feel that that was uh, their space where they could find friends, they could be signposted to work, employment. Um, so a really rich history. Um, and then also um, now it's quite a lot of, it's all always been very mixed, but I think the dominant cultures were then Caribbean and now Caribbean and African. So Wayne and I decided to focus on those cultures um, and those people that were still there because they had these amazing stories and also it's a very flamboyant community who said they didn't mind us photographing them. So what we do is we get funding and we co-author with them, which means that Wayne and I do the photography, but then we write their stories with them. So I'll kind of turn up with a laptop, I'll write the story with them. Um, if it's a younger person, I'll email it to them and then they can work with me to design it how they want. And the older generation, I tend to do it and write it and then read it to them. And we like this because I think if you include people in this way, it's opposed to traditional documentary, which tended to kind of be one white guy going in um, and then coming out with a story, you know, his story rather than it being their story. But I think documentary is also kind of, I suppose, democratising a bit where it's, 
you know, it's not just one middle class person doing it now. It tends to be all different people. There's a lot of no really good northern documentarians um, and also females and working class people. So, again, that's kind of, I suppose, um, branching out a bit. So this thing in co-authorship was really important to us and making sure that the people that we were documenting knew where their images were going. Um, so we don't sell any of the images. We give them to a Museum of London, Hackney Archives, Hackney Museum, and any kind of platform. Uh, we're looking into black archives in Brixton at the moment to give them the work as well. And really, it's it, yeah, I, I think we found it you know, it hasn't been an easy project because whenever you're documenting people, and we live in an age where I think people are quite paranoid about having their picture taken because of phones, because of the internet. So um, it hasn't been an easy project, but it's been rewarding. And also, like, it's been really interesting try, sort of gaining people's trust and working with them over a really long time. So we've worked with people there now over, like, four years. And we've had... Um, Hold on. So we've had one, two, three, four exhibitions. And the current one we've got up is the um, black and white prints. I think it's 16 black and white prints on the Red Cross wall in Dalston. Um, and yeah, we pay quite a lot for the photographs. They're quite expensive because we put them up for sometimes two years. So there's, they're really good value for money. Mm. Um, and also if they get tagged, it's like they can be wiped. So they're quite easy to kind of keep. Um, and then when you take them down, they can be moved on. So, um, and from that, then we also then decided last year to start documenting the protest groups. So we documented Black Lives Matters, Trans Lives Matters, um, Britain is Broken, Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, and a few others. Mm. Um, and we decided that we wanted to put that in the street because we felt that that was being cocooned into kind of galleries where only a certain type would go and we felt that maybe you know getting those groups out you know, on the street is, is something that we're kind of aiming to do so we're aiming to put the groups that aren't in I suppose the right-wing press out onto the street so that people can see what's going on you know in other alternative spaces if you like with other groups that may not be your regular museum type gallery type um, photos or whatever so so yeah so started with Ridley Road moved over to Gillett Square now doing those two and then the protest stories is kind of where we're at the moment and I think our next one we're going to be looking to I was just talking to you about it earlier which is just documenting the city or those communities that live on the fringes of the city mm -hmm. um, and we've just been funded by a group called Inspiring London which are part of the city of London to do that so it, it's kind of, we kind of feel like we're kind of gaining. I suppose the question is, you know, with the demise of the high street, as we know it, we need to start thinking about our consumption. What do we have on our high roads that offer people a chance to come out and be seen and go to things? You know, take the kids somewhere that's free or meet a friend. You know, what, what other options are there apart from spending money in shops? And so we're thinking if we had street galleries, um, this would be a way of keeping our streets active, um, you know, friendly, community-based, uh, artistic. Uh, and not all art has to be inside a gallery to be valuable or Amen. worthy. <laughs> As you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, um, 
it's so inspiring to see um, more and more projects coming out onto the streets because, um, yeah, there's there's still a huge amount of um, people that live in, I mean, we're sitting in Tower Hamlets now, but sort of what we do um, sort of is based around Tower Hamlets and Hackney. And there's a huge amount of people, particularly young people, that don't go to galleries or museums and um, they probably don't want to and that's okay. But to have exhibitions out on the street I think they're so powerful and I think um, the way that you guys are doing it you're talking about some of these groups that may be in the right wing press um, are given a bad reputation they are um, spoken about as a as a problem to society something that's kind of getting in the way of people living a um, happy contented existence but um, really by putting those groups out on the street and showing what they're doing uh, I think firstly it really humanizes them and it helps other people engage that actually these people they they look like us they are like they are us we are them rather than it being oh that group is a radical bunch of people that are trying to do this it's more like no these people are just us and I think that's such a hugely important um thing that you're doing with it and taking it back to the streets is um feels like a really natural place for it to exist doesn't it yeah I think so and I, I think you know really you know from a while back Wayne and I were really inspired by groups like yours you know that you know the graffiti artists and the, the kind of people who did it originally you know um who's that really great guy uh is it Hambleton you know the guy who does the figures going way back to New York again in the 60s. You know, there's something that touches people about Keith it. Haring. Keith Haring. Yeah. Um, there was Keith Haring, Basquiat and, Basquiat and um, Hambleton, okay. who's this guy that did these incredible figures. He actually stayed alive for years and then died in his old age, but was not didn't become as famous as um, okay. Keith Haring. Um, but I suppose I'm talking about that because I think that, you know, the idea of putting something on the street has to come from graffiti artists and street artists. Um, and that's definitely who probably I was, even though I wasn't one of them, it was definitely who I've been inspired by um, with my photography. Because I'm sort of thinking, well, I don't just want to put it up in a gallery for two weeks for a certain group of people who may or may not come to see it. It's really important to share it um, and for it to be kind of out there for everybody you know, um, and for free. Um, so I think, yeah, definitely the inspiration has come from street art. And I, and I think, as I said before, you know, I'm hoping that with the demise of consumerism that our streets are really handed over to people that can make them, you know, more interesting, more colourful, more vibrant, you know, make people happier. And, you know, it's not even really about making people happier, but making people think, you know, providing news almost or current affairs could be put on the street. It doesn't have to be in a newspaper owned by a billionaire. Can, you know, there could be spaces that allow for people to read things, to see things, view things that are relevant to us, you know. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the journey so far with Future Hackney. Mm. Um, and, yeah, just we, I think Wayne and I just keep, you know, we're just keeping on, we just sort of keep applying for funding, keep trying to get more photographs out there. I mean, we're quite grassroots, which means we do every project almost as a new concept. 
So we don't want to keep repeating something or doing the same thing. So our, our next big project is planned after the city one is planned for Gillett Square um, in the actual space. So at the moment, there's a huge floor space um, there and we're looking to um, pace down almost like the old fashioned rave posters, but huge. Um, with just flour and water and just put them down on the ground so the ground becomes a canvas. And again, we'll probably be putting, you know, the um, African and Caribbean community and it's about keeping their stories and them visible as a community who really did make that space special, interesting, incredible from way back. So, yeah, it's quite some quite exciting things coming up and we're, we're really looking forward to that because it's something that's new to us you know it's a new art form rather than printing up these rather large expensive photographs we're actually going to go back to kind of it being um a bit like you know that guy jr you know the street mm -hmm. artist jr he does a lot of that pasting down and it's really incredible you know it has such an impact on people it's just you put faces up uh, the one he did in Jerusalem where he put the Palestinians and the Jewish community all mixed up together. It's such a powerful way of connecting people, you know, through art. Yeah, he did a, um, a beautiful one in um, the favelas in Rio as well. Yeah, all of them. Just I know. And so much of his work. Um, yeah, for anyone that... Uh, don't know if there's many people listening to this that haven't heard of JR, but there's some brilliant, um, some brilliant documentaries that he's done recently out there on like movie and Netflix, I think. Um, yeah, so it, it's quite um, surprising speaking to you actually, because last time you came in to do this chat, um, we were going to do the chat, but you just got a call saying that um, Network Rail were going to remove the um, protest photographs. Um, because they were maybe upsetting or I can't remember exactly what it was, but um, it was all going off anyway. And we were like, right, let's just not do this podcast right now. Let's, um, let's you know, talk about it when we can actually just have a conversation without thinking about that. Um, but yeah, I'm quite surprised at how, um, despite a lot of the things that um, your work talks about and documents, um, you seem really, um, really positive about everything and really um, excited that you can um, influence some some change out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, Network Rail were really upset and obviously we have a lot of respect for them. So we they, they gave us their walls. So yeah. we didn't want to have a bad relationship with them. And um, so we have, we have, We've had some really positive local press from the actual council's newspaper, Love Hackney, who wrote about the exhibition very positively. Um, and also that said that they were really proud that Hackney was a borough and a council that allowed this kind of thing, allowed these voices to come through, young voices and also the um, change, you know, that we can change. Um, and also Hackney Citizen wrote a really good article on it. And obviously, as an organisation, because we put up very large, quite, you know, heavy photos. Um, we have like proper insurances and risk assessments and things like that. So we wrote to Network Row and we said, all, you know, we've got all this positive press and we've got all these kind of things that make sure everything's safe on your walls. And they seem to be okay now. So um, fingers crossed that, you know, they've kind of understood that we are only trying to promote 
uh, a positive message in that things can change and there is, you know, a, a, there is an environmental crisis going on. Um, and this, you know, we can't keep it hidden. We can't not talk about it. Um, and hopefully the protest stories exhibition that we've put up in Mayor Street, um, it's under Mayor Street Bridge, um, Hackney E8, um, it kind of opens up discussion around these issues. Um, and that's what we're hoping to do. We're hoping up to open up discussions. And I think that's why I'm positive about the future, because I think anyone who is against that you know, that is that those are the people that need to be questioned, not us. I think just allowing things to be open for discussion is the kind of right way to go, whether it be about, you know, trans lives matters, black lives matters, uh, extinction, uh, just stop oil and all the rest of them. They're, all those groups are asking for is that we address issues um, that have come to the fore mm -hmm. and laws and, you know, I suppose the way we live, maybe there needs to be some changes and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, I think just mentioning some of those groups as well, I think and you were mentioning the, the Daily Mail as well. And um, I think I read that there was, I don't want to be quoted on this, but there was something like um, 80,000 negative mentions of trans people in their newspapers and then a trans teenager gets violently murdered and you know these things they're not they're not by accident you know so what people read and what they consume is is so important i think so to have a say in that as an individual because we, we often say this on tours you know when there's a, a lot of um if someone sees a, a piece of graffiti they will automatically have a negative um, idea of that but if they see an advertisement for a huge company that doesn't pay any tax in the UK and contributes massively to the environmental breakdown of the planet they'll just walk past it as if it's totally fine because that's what we've been conditioned to to believe and um, I think it's really important that we get more critical about um, what motive someone has about taking back that space and if they um, yeah, what what their intention is for their for their area and for their community, and what part they play in that community as well. Because I think um, a local person putting their name on a on a wall has the exact same right as a big corporation to put their name on a wall. Um, just because one's paid for it, they don't pay us to look at it. They only pay the building owner to kind of um, host it, I suppose. So, yeah, I think. Um, that yeah that um that constant drip feed that we get from the media has to be there has to be an intervention in there somewhere because i, I kind of think if we if if people cared as much about um you know the environmental breakdown as they do about um someone being referred to as them or they <laughs> the world would be fine everything would be all right right now if everyone took out their anger on like whether people eat meat or not on like um oil companies making more money in a year than like anyone could ever make in like a million lifetimes i think things would be on the right track and it's just about um redirecting the narrative i suppose isn't it i think so i mean it's yeah it's a really difficult thing to talk about at the moment because i think you kind of hope that things are shifting 
and it's like you said, being in this bubble again. It, it's, you know, I, I tend to, because I'm vegan, for example, plant-based, I tend to read a lot of vegan news and then I sort of go out into the world and I'm like, okay, I think only 7% of the population are vegan. So it's like... It, it, you know, and that's, again, because of the narrative in our newspapers, really, that I have always thought is, I don't know what it was called years ago, like, didn't Marx call it something like the ideological state apparatus? It was like, that's what is at the top, controlling us and how we think and what we do. And unless we look at who is in control of that state apparatus, um, which is basically a few men who all went to the same very rich school and a guy called Murdoch. Um, you know, unless we start looking up um, and seeing who is running these kind of things that we've got, these systems, um, then we can't change anything. But of course, the newspapers always tell us to look down, you know, to look down. At, you know, that's why a lot of right wing papers always demonize, you know, trans people, uh, refugees, uh, migrants. Uh, anyone who actually who's slightly different, vegans, you know, um, because it's easier, isn't it? It's easier to blame someone who is poorer, who is a bit different to you, it might be a bit weird, um, than it is to actually look up and actually see that it's kind of basically a bunch of rich men who are kind of puppeteering at the top. So, but as I said, I do think, that, you know, the younger generation are drawing attention to these systems. I am seeing them more. I don't know about you, but I'm seeing them, I'm seeing them pop up on things like breakfast TV now mm. and having a conversation with Piers Morgan. They're not being seen in a good light still. And I think they're doing things like editing their conversations, but they're getting on there. And I think a lot of um, Animal Rebellion, who I kind of document sometimes, who are trying to get the... Um, government to admit that the you know a lot of climate catastrophe coming is being caused by our current animal agricultural systems um they're kind of walking into five-star michelin restaurants and causing hell and all this sort of stuff so i think that there is this breakthrough in kind of people willing to take risks and do things that there wasn't before and i think that is you know, changing this idea of this sort of ideological state apparatus where people are going, well, actually, let's look up and see what's going on rather than just blaming a few people who are just, yeah. like, nothing to do with the problem, you know. Yeah, I think that punching up is really important. I think that's something that um, is starting to happen now amongst young people, but then you can see that younger people are influencing their parents. And if those parents are people in power... Mm. Um, for instance, recently, I think Reading Football Club had um, something to do with uh, climate breakdown on their on their kit. And Gary Lineker is talking about that in a in a positive way now, a match of the day when they um, handcuffed themselves to the goalposts. A lot of football fans were, were uh, outraged about it. But um, again, Gary Lineker's sort of taken that stand as someone who is probably the most... F um, well-known and um, probably most featured on the TV football pundit. And he's the one sort of taking that stand now. And I think when that starts to happen, things start to change a little bit more. I also read um, an interview with the comedian Paul Whitehouse recently. And, um, and he said that he was messing around with his kids doing an accent. And they said, Dad, you can't do that anymore. And he was like, okay, well, what's the rules then? And A, firstly, that he just wants to learn. And then B, he said, well, okay, from now on then we don't do the accents of the people that are oppressed. 
We don't take the piss out of people that are oppressed. We punch up. And that's and that was felt so important to me that it wasn't just another old stick in the mud that says, oh, well, back in my day, it was all fine. And it's, it was never fine. And now at least people are starting to, through their children, trying to actually learn. And people with influence and power are doing that because their demographic that they speak to are generally um, white men. And they're generally, you know, the people that, that need to make the most change in the world. In my opinion, I feel that white men are the people that need to make the most amount of change in the world at the moment because we're the ones with the most amount of power. Yeah, I agree. I do think, though, it is a certain group of white men. I don't yeah. think it's like all white men. I think there is a certain group of very privileged, you know, Etonian, private school. Um, I mean, it's funny, years ago I went to, um, I did my degree at Goldsmiths, you know, and um, I studied this thing that, you know, for years, culture was only considered to be white and middle class. And um, it took like a major breakthrough of like quite a lot of academics and, and, and kind of thought processes and, and pushing and struggling and uh, speaking out to actually get like the North included in the fact that it was cultural as well. And then black communities. And, you know, so again, like I think that Mick Litch thing is, is staying in my head. You know, these things did not come easy to us. You know, it, we they had to they had to be they were processes that had to be fought for at every stage, um, and I think you know again what we're going back to is this thing on the street. You know, pushing our way into the streets so that they're not just controlled by a certain few for you know. Uh, the benefit of a certain few is again, you know, something that it, it will come. It will take time, um, and I suppose artists um, like ourselves just have to keep on pushing for that right to do so. Do you feel like in because um, Hackney and Tower Hamlets? I mean, you're you're focused on Hackney, but Tower Hamlets, where we are now, I think it's fifty one percent child poverty rate, but it is the um, fastest gentrifying borough in the UK, um, according to a recent um, study. I think Hackney is 28% child poverty, and both of these places border the city of London, like this um, square mile that sees more money go through it every day than any other square mile on planet Earth. And do you feel that, I've, I always feel that because of that, it does kind of feel like a bit of a front line. It feels like, um, you know, when you go out into the country or when you go to other parts of the country, you don't see it quite as starkly, I don't think. And you don't, um, it's quite clear and obvious from when you stand here, what the problems are and that trickle down economics and these things that we've been told they're, they're not working and that things aren't really working that well. And when you see a borough like Hackney being gentrified so quickly and people being moved out of their, their homes really to make way for um, sort of short-term profit for a very few. Um, yeah, how do, you, how do you kind of feel about those changes at the moment? Well, I think that's why Wayne and I decided that when, you know, we were documenting Willie Rhodes and Gillett Square, that we wanted to put the images outside. I mean, that was the very reason, in a way, um, because we felt that if we put it into a gallery, 
A, the people that we are documenting, some of them won't see it because they don't go to galleries. Maybe that's because they work on a Saturday or they're too expensive or it's not a space they feel comfortable in. But also it was about saying, look, these people live here. You know, they may not be the new Hackney or the new Shoreditch or the new East End, um, but they are people that have a really, you know, long uh, and rich history in, in the borough and in East London. And therefore, they need to be seen. They need to be on the streets. Their stories are relevant. They're interesting, uh, you know, innovative, important. Um, and, you know, their, their images are beautiful, you, you know, because they're real people and they happen to be um, around, around us and they represent us, you know. Um, so I think... In, for us, you know, the, the way that we can help to change what you're talking about is to put real people or real communities on our street. Um, but in a way that, you know, is artistic. And, you know, sometimes I think when they do, you know, when they put up these new flats and they put those images of like a perfect family and perfect, well-dressed people walking through, we try to not do that. So, you know, everyone who we put up isn't this perfect person or doesn't have this perfect lifestyle. Um, and, and again, it's about making people realise that, you know, we are all different and we all have different needs and wants, but we can live together, you know, and that can be a positive thing. Um, but with regards to, I suppose, on a more serious note, this kind of trickle-down economics, I suppose what is happening in our cities is the microcosms, so our boroughs are reflecting the top. So our top is a grossly unfair tax system. If we had a fair tax system, we wouldn't have billionaires. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, our, our, yeah, so our boroughs, especially the ones that are very close to that extreme wealth, are showing the cracks that are happening at the top, which is you have a small amount of people owning all the money, um, and you have a mass population not being able to even eat. Um, and that, I think we're, what, the fifth richest nation? They keep telling us that, but they keep, I keep, they keep that. saying all of that, but <laughs> don't really see that around here. And I, mean, I know, and yeah. we've got such extreme child poverty, you know, mental health, you know, our schools have no money, our nurses aren't being paid. And these are the, all the frameworks that are keeping us alive. Mm -hmm. You know, our social health, people who work in, you know, with the elderly. Or, or you know, and at, the, at the same time, we've got an elderly that's going to, because of the baby boomers, is going to get bigger and bigger. And yet we don't have any framework for looking after these people. Um, so, again, I'm just hoping that, you know, all these things are now being questioned I really like this idea like I said earlier that we're getting these young people almost forcing themselves onto these kind of mainstream like uh, you know breakfast morning tv I don't really watch a lot of it myself but occasionally on Instagram I'll see that these people are getting in there and that's where they need to get in because they don't seem to be able to infiltrate this, the, the press at the moment I think Murdoch has a very tight grip on it so it's very difficult for a dissenting voice as a journalist I'm imagining to go in there and change things but they do seem to be getting onto these kind of tv shows which again is some kind of moving moving things along you know but um 
Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I'm just, uh, you know, it, it makes me sad. I think it makes me upset that there's still such a hierarchy, you know, that is unnecessary. Nobody needs. I mean, what do you do with billions of pounds? What do you spend it on? What, you know, it's that thing about hoarding, isn't it? If you're working class or underclass, whatever they want to call us, or poor, and you hoard, you're considered to have an illness. But if you're rich, then it's fine. In fact, it's something to, you know, think of as kind of, you know, the way forward. So it's okay to hoard billions of pounds that you cannot possibly do anything with in reality, except buy more. But yeah, it's not okay if you're working class, you know, to do the same thing. So where does, I don't understand that then, that there needs to be more explanation around that. Because surely if you are a billionaire and you're hoarding wealth, then you are mentally ill and you need to be put into somewhere to help you with that problem. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think as well, there needs to be like, a, there needs to be a mental health assessment for anyone that um, goes into parliament as well. Like you should be assessed to see if you are capable mm-hmm. of doing that because the majority of them, at the minute, they just do not seem like they have the um, the mental well-being to be able to do that. And I think um, from people that I have spoke to that have um, been in the boarding school system, they have said that it is not a healthy environment it doesn't breed um healthy individuals and they're the only people that are going through that system and straight into parliament and uh i think so many of the systems are so outdated at the minute and we're kind of i think they're they're slowly being exposed as that but then there's a question mark over, okay, well, what next then? How do we do that? And I think a lot of the people in power are using that as a fear tactic of, well, if we don't have this system, everything else will fall apart because you don't have a solution of how it could look otherwise. And I think that's a part of the issue at the minute. There needs to be a better um, a better collective alternative, maybe, um, for people to be able to say, well, it's not just this political party or whatever that's not working at the minute. The whole system seems to be pretty broken. And I think it would start, from my point of view, with, uh, with fair taxation. I think that would fix a lot of the, a lot of the problems and we're just not getting that at the moment, are we? No, they need a wealth cap. They need a wealth cap, yeah. They need a wealth cap. And then I think that, you know, I think I agree with you that it's just, it can't just be one political system and then the other, then the other one again, then the other one back again. I mean, it hasn't worked. It isn't working. Um, I think that going forward, it seems to be the Labour movements, collectively, people's assemblies that are working. And I think that's why I really like Extinction, because they want everything to be run by people's assemblies. Um, And again, we have this very small, tight political system that is, as you said, run by a group of people that are just from one place, whereas surely anything that really represented a true democracy would have uh, widespread uh, viewpoints. And also, you know, there's a real thing in funding at the moment, which is lived experience. And how can somebody who's always been used to extreme wealth and extreme privilege have lived experience in running a country that doesn't have that. You know, and I think 
that's why these labour movements that I keep talking about, I think, are becoming so relevant. And the likes of Mick Lynch again and the unions are becoming more and more important because maybe they are the future and it is a case of, the you know, different groups would meet to, to make different decisions. It wouldn't be just decided upon one group who have only got the interests of, say, you know, the wealthy or their mates or, you know, in in kind of um, benefiting from certain laws or changes, you know. So I do think that all these things are coming, but often, you know, change is long and complicated, hard work, difficult, you know. Um, and as we were saying as street artists, we know that from what we're doing, you know, that it's, it's a real struggle just to get something on the street. You know, it's a real struggle to get people to understand that not everything that goes on the street that isn't um, corporate isn't bad, you know, and has a deserving place to be there. Um, and be questioned like everything else. You know, it's not like everything that we put on the street should be just, oh, yeah, that's a nice picture. You don't almost want that either. You want people to say, well, actually, that's not what I want, or I do want that, but I'd like this as well. I'd like, you know, my own community to be up. Or, you know, so just I suppose it makes people think about their world um, and what they want rather than being a this is what you're going to get type thing. I have lost my thread now. No, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's just about opening up discussion, isn't it? And um, um, enabling a, a new generation of, of critical thinkers. Because yeah. I'm not sure that, like, in the... I mean, your um, your kid's a teenager now, so you're probably starting to see the sharp end of that um, school system, which in many ways is, is an exam factory. And I think maybe... Um, you start to see as your kid progresses through the school, um, the creativity start getting sucked out of them and the critical thinking starting to get taken away. And it's more just about learning the curriculum. And I, I think, um, yeah, with what you're doing and with anyone really that's putting uh, an intervention out on the streets, it is really trying to open up discussion and trying to open people's uh, minds up to what they want and why they want it and what they don't want and why they don't want it. Because they're really basic things that I don't think we really consider often enough. We just carry on with what's, what we're doing and what's there already without really being too critical about it. I think so. And, I, and then I think it kind of goes wider than that. I mean, I think that as well, we've been recently funded by Heritage. So Lottery Heritage have been really good in funding us. Um, and we've just put in another application to them because they really get that I think, you know, our communities are of value. And these are stories that maybe in the past we've lost, you know, really incredible migrant communities, you know, gay communities, uh, you know, women, all types of different groups have gone through our inner cities and none of their stories have been captured. Um, and I think, you know, groups like heritage are starting to understand that this is actually English heritage. This is London's heritage. And to document this is a really important thing. Um, and again, it allows critical voices. You know, it's like you're saying about the school system. It allows something outside of the mainstream. And also it's really fulfilling, I think, for me to, when I do, you know, work with people to take their stories and they say, 
what was that important? Well, that story I just told you. Um, and I'm like, yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible that you came here from Jamaica in the 70s um, and you made a life here and the things that you went through um, and the, the systems, that you, systems that you had to kind of, you know, fight against, uh, struggle against to kind of be somebody and um, claim ownership of where you lived and your community. And it, it's really rewarding for me to hear those stories, write them with the co-author of them, with the person I'm writing it with, you know, work on their photograph with them and then see that image go up on the street. Um, and then, you know, there's always a delight when they see their image because by that time they understand why we're doing it. Um, and then to give those images over to sort of an archival um, place like Hackney Archives, who have been incredible with us as well and so that to see that whole process of that person's life um and then realizing that their life meant something um that that's really great for us like we really enjoy seeing that whole kind of circle yeah that's such a great um sense of um fulfillment i guess mm -hmm. at the end of it it's like that um that full project start middle end mm -hmm. <clears throat> And when you get that, um, especially with um, with the story of a person involved in it, I guess that feels quite special. Yeah, it does. It, it's uh, there's one guy actually that I document called Half Pint, and he's a guy that goes to Gillett Square religiously um, because he's been losing his sight now. He's all, he's I think he's almost completely lost his sight now. He's completely blind. Um, but he's had a real struggle because um, he's trying to keep his independence. Um, he lives on his own. He doesn't want to sit inside all day. And, you know, he said, well, he can't even stare at the four walls or the TV because he can't see. So he's really, he feels alone. You know, he said he feels, again, that, you know, like I was talking about earlier, London can be very lonely, especially if you're, if you have a disability or you, or you're somehow different and you think that you can't mix, you know. Uh, and I think after COVID as well, like our mental health rates and like, PTSD and people going out all that stuff has increased because we were forced to stay in for two years so he goes to Gillett Square he's got an incredible story um, about growing up in Jamaica and coming here but he goes to Gillett Square to to have company you know to be around people that his community that understand his culture um, and so someone like Half Pint who is up in the Gillett Square stories which is on the Red Cross wall in Dalston um, you know, he was just over the moon about having that story put up and uh, the, the image put up. And he, he's got a T-shirt with his kind of head spinning, spinning and he's got one love. He wears his T-shirt, Bob Marley T-shirt. And, you know, it just gave him a real sense of joy to be considered for that project. And also to, I think he felt that he was representing something bigger than himself. And I think that gave him a real sense of pride you know, so yeah, so, you know, that that's just one example of many of, of people that we've kind of worked with and co-authored with that have really got gained something out of this. So I just hope to sort of keep, keep going really. Yeah. So the future, the future of Hackney sounds quite bright <laughs> from your perspective. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, we're hoping to kind of branch out as well. As I said, we've got this now, this city stories one going on. So we're hoping, we're thinking of staying in East London because that's an area that we know and we feel like we can tap into and we've got 
other organizations like yourselves that we can work with and you know help and hopefully you know kind of yeah unite with all these groups around East London I think when we try and go too wide then we kind of lose the thread um, so I think we generally hope to stay in Hackney, Shoreditch, you know, uh, Dalston, and maybe coming even up to here to the city, as I said, with a new project we're doing. Um, and, 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 and as we sort of discussed earlier, I think it is a space, East London is an area where there is, uh, it, it's being, it's becoming more acceptable to put out art on the street. It's becoming more acceptable to kind of have critical thought out on the street. And I'm just hoping East London keeps that kind of, you know, I suppose, I don't know what the word is, really, um, innovation and um, enthusiasm. Yeah. And it's diversity as well. I think it's so important that it keeps that moving forward because that's the kind of uh, the heartbeat of it all, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think being open to change and new groups and welcoming, you know, it's about welcoming, isn't it? That's saying, well, this is on the wall and it's about you know, being open to everybody rather, again, than just that particular few. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? Because um, normally we switch off and then someone tells me something really fascinating. So is there anything that you want to tell me before we before we end? Um, just that if anyone would like to go and see the exhibitions that we've got up at the moment. So there's two. There's one at uh, the Red Cross um, in Dalston. They're very kindly, Red Cross very kindly gave us their outdoor wall space for free, which is great. That exhibition, Gillett Square Stories, will be up for um, a year at least. And uh, Protest Stories is under Mayor Street Bridge, Hackney E8. So they're both in E8. They're about a five-minute walk from each other, so you could do a little tour if you turn up. Um, and that one's um, hopefully, we're hoping that Network Rail are kind of okay with it now. Um, and hopefully that one's up for a year or more. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we really enjoy people getting back to us and telling us what they think or what they think we should do next. So we're always open to kind of ideas. And we have a website and we have Instagram Future Hackney if anyone wants to contact us. Uh, we also run workshops um, with young people twice a year. And we run intergenerational workshops as well. So if anyone wants to be a part of that, they can email me, donatravis at futurehackney.com. Um, and we're more than willing to work with kind of different groups in the community to um, to bring them into the project and maybe get what they want on the walls as well outside. So, yeah, I hope that was all OK. Yeah, it's been really nice speaking to you, Don. Thanks so much for coming in. And, um, yeah, keep up the good work. It's, it's really great to see it all, all out there. And I hope um, we see loads more in the future. Thank you. Take care. Mm.